This podcast is for investment professionals only. Welcome. What can you learn from 16,000 conversations? Well, that's how many meetings Fidelity's 165 analysts have had in the past year with senior management teams at companies across all sectors and all regions. The 2019 analyst survey reflects that wealth of information to create a unique view of the global corporate landscape and how we think it'll fare this year. With me today to talk over some of the key findings are Fidelity's Director of Research for Equity, Michael Sayers, and Global Head of Research for Fixed Income, Marty Dropkin. Welcome to you. You both. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Fabulous to be here. <laughs> Jolly good. Well, let's start with a bit of background on what makes this survey unique, as I described it. Marty, um, can you can you help me out here? Well, it's the night there we've been running the survey, Richard, and uh, it's, it's a great way that we can pull information out of our of, out of our equity and fixed income analysts who who collaborate on a normal basis. But uh, you know, we have analysts spread across uh, Asia. Uh, the UK in particular. And this year, in fact, we've introduced, uh, we have a growing team in Toronto. Uh, so we've, able to bring, we've been able to bring in the North American perspective as well. And what does it add that other surveys, you know, macroeconomic uh, data that they don't? Well, it's a true, it's a true bottom-up look at, uh, at the world, if you will. Uh, whereas lots of surveys that come out of uh, out of banks and the sell side will take will come from a macro perspective and very be very top down. They'll look at uh, data that's that's already out there. Uh, our survey is based on analyst engagement with management teams, and you mentioned the number of meetings that we do. This survey is really built up from the conversations that our analysts have with those management teams, and it's very forward looking. Okay, and Michael, let me come to you then uh, to ask how they form these opinions, your analysts. Well, it's based on the insight that they gain from talking to the major corporates, uh, the insight they gain from talking to their competitors, to their suppliers, to their distributors, to private companies, to industry contacts, to experts. It's really part of the sort of mosaic of insight that we garner from all of those different sources and which we hope to bring to bear on the investment process. Okay, well, let's get to the the meat of this year's survey itself. Tell me about the overall picture, the sentiment indicator, where analysts are asked to gauge management optimism for the year ahead. Now, that's declined this year right across the board, ending two years of steady improvements. Why is that? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say is, yes, sentiment has declined globally. But you've got to recognize this was from a very strong starting point in 2018, which in fact was the strongest sentiment indicator we've recorded during the lifetime of the survey. Um, so a long way to fall. Yes. And we remain in positive territory globally in every region except China. I think by sector, almost every sector was down in terms of sentiment, apart from healthcare, no doubt reflecting the traditional defensive qualities of that sector. But again, although they're down, most sectors remain in positive territory, the exceptions being utilities and consumer discretionary, which I think we're going to touch on later in the podcast. We will. And um, Marty, this is an aggregate uh, number covering credit as well as equity. Um, What does the sentiment say um, about the fixed income world? Um, What are your analysts telling you? So there's a couple of things to think about there, Richard. First of all, fixed income analysts tend to uh, approach approach companies a little bit differently. They're much more focused on cash flow. So the questions are wide ranging, and the same questions are asked to to every analyst, whether they're equity or fixed income. 
But I think having that balance of views brings out a little bit more depth when it comes to the balance sheet type questions. Um, you know, I think the other the other angle of, of it is, uh, and if I can be a bit cynical about about how, how fixed income analysts are cynical, we tend to be a little bit more skeptical about the world. And so I think I think you'll get uh, that balance of an equity view and a fixed income view as it relates to. Uh, to the, to the overall environment. Okay, well, let's take a look at one sector on its own now. In fact, it's one which has suffered one of the biggest falls in sentiment, uh, the consumer sector. Uh, Harriet Wildgoose, she's one of our analysts, uh, equities, actually. She covers some of the big companies in the US and tells us here what she thinks is going on. Over the last 12 months, two of the key drivers of cost price inflation have been labour costs and freight costs. And they're probably the two biggest cost items for, for retailers in general. Some companies have been more affected than others because of the way that they ship items around the US. So inflation pressures there from labour and freight costs, says Harriet. In fact, she, she goes on later in that interview to say that it's the cost of labour or wages within freight that are the biggest burden rather than uh, fuel. Now, Michael, are these sorts of pressures on margins evident elsewhere? They are. I mean, I think that um, we are definitely uh, seeing a pickup in wage inflationary pressures um, around the world. Um, And normally you would hope that these can be passed on to the consumer and margins would be protected. I think we are seeing some signs that A, margins are starting from a very, very high starting point. uh, And then secondly, um, in an environment where consumer is weakening, it's it's harder to pass on those costs to the final consumer. That was one of the strongest responses coming through the, the survey around margins, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And uh, interestingly, I think also the consumer discretionary side was one of those sectors which was suffering the biggest uh, reversal in sentiment. Um, and I think, you know, there are a number of factors at work there. Um, that's the uh, cost pressures, uh, as Harriet described, uh, a weaker consumer, particularly in China, um, and, and really the sort of headwinds that the sector faces in terms of the move from high street to online um, are, are really, if anything, accelerating. Uh, and obviously, as more and more uh, goods are delivered, that puts upward pressure on, on, on freight and delivery costs. And Martin, how big a concern is that squeeze on margins from a, from a credit perspective? One, one of the things that showed up in the survey was that uh, our analysts generically see balance sheets deteriorating, particularly in the U.S., uh, so that is a factor to, to, to think about, and we do every day. As far as that goes, uh, you know, balance sheets are still relatively strong. Uh, if you look at leverage uh, through through the cycles uh, over the last ten years, uh, it has increased, and it's back towards where um, back towards where we were, you know, approaching ten years ago pre pre global financial crisis. However, you know, interest rates are still low by historical standards, and and yes, funding costs are starting to rise, which is another thing that came out of the survey. But they're starting to rise from very, very low levels. And so, um, you know, there's less concern on the credit side as far as what this wage inflation will will do to overall company balance sheets. Uh, So you're talking about funding costs being low. Well, that's because we're in a low rate uh, environment uh, at the moment because it's a very benign inflation Mm. picture. But are these the first signs that um, uh, inflation may well start to pick up when you start to see it in in, in wage increases? I mean, there are some classic late cycle signals coming through the survey, and I'm sure we'll talk a lot lot about that. One of the themes that Harry picked up on about increasing costs within the consumer sector is a pervasive theme throughout the whole 
survey. Although with wages rising, presumably consumer sentiment um, would would rise, which um, sort of would would balance that out to a to a degree. You would hope it would balance it out to a degree, but um, that's certainly not not the picture emerging from our consumer analysts. Uh, as I said, that may be in part because they've been somewhat beaten down by some of the other pressures within the sector. Yeah, I, I think Richard, one of the one of the points to really be be concerned about is. If wages are rising, you would want to look to see what the ability of of companies is to pass that along. And uh, you know, the survey also suggested that there is some pricing power uh, in different sectors. But broadly speaking, there's a bit of a concern that uh, that companies may not be able to pass along the pricing. They'll have to um, absorb it back into those margins again. Exactly. You've both alluded to uh, where we are in the economic cycle. Um, of course, the threat of recession, it does seem to be a big theme for 2019, certainly a question on many people's uh, lips. And the survey asked the analysts directly which stage of the economic cycle their companies are in. And, uh, Michael, there's been quite a marked shift, hasn't there? There has. I mean, much more support for the idea that expansion is extremely mature. Uh, Many more analysts than last year calling out a slowdown. In fact, roughly one-third of the analysts in the survey reported um, a a slowdown this year versus just over 10% in in the prior year. But still, interestingly, within the survey, very little support for the idea that we're in recession. Why not? I mean, uh, because if you read headlines, there's so much negativity around, then people seem to have talked themselves into it to a degree, but the analysts are not saying that. They're not seeing it. That's that's not reflected in their forecasts. That's not the... That's not the narrative they're picking up from talking to companies. Now, you might argue that companies are almost the last to know in some cases, but that's just not the message we're getting. I mean, when I look at our numbers, um, the aggregate numbers from all of the financial models in the system, um, it's really consistent with the message that, yes, growth is slowing, um, but we're not in recession. Now, clearly, there are some factors that we need to think more closely about uh, in terms of fiscal stimulus, uh, in terms of, you know, is the path of interest rates going to be quite as aggressive as some of the sort of people calling for recession have talked about? We're certainly getting a more dovish tone uh, from the Fed so far in, in, in 2019. It's definitely changed, hasn't it, Martin? I, I mean, I, I, Michael raises the right point, which is, yes, growth is slowing, but we also came, we're coming off of a very, very strong period of growth in 2018. So it's still growth. And, uh, and I think that's what's driving a lot of the analyst responses is, yes, things are slowing down, but it's not disastrous. And uh, at this point, when they look 12 months out, they're still seeing high single-digit earnings growth uh, in aggregate. And so that, that to me is, is, you know, it's still growth. Okay, well, let's um, take another moment with one of our analysts, Lee Sotos, who covers financials for equities again. He's been noticing other late cycle signals. One of the phenomenon that we've seen in the back half of 2018 is a significant influx of alternative sources of capital, which has been an inhibitor to uh, U.S. bank loan growth. Alternative sources of capital might be hedge funds, private equity funds, insurance companies, or even loan funds by mutual fund companies. It tends to enter the market sort of later in a cycle. Uh, You tend to find that that is uh, typically um, yield-seeking or risk-seeking types of funds. So 
bad news for banks that can't or won't compete on on price, perhaps. Uh, Marty, tell me about these alternative sources of capital. As Lee mentioned, this is classic late cycle uh, signals where banks who who are under some significant regulatory scrutiny from the global financial crisis uh, are still under this pressure, and so you know companies need to raise funds, and and there's demand, and so they're they're looking at other sources of capital. I think one of the places that we really see in the credit markets is leverage loans, and um, there's been phenomenal growth in leverage loans. Uh, some of this is on the demand side. People are sort of investors are positioning for a rise in rates, and leverage loans tend to be floating rate instruments, and so um, there's some natural hedging that's involved in that. The risk is that leverage loans are supposed to be the safer part of the balance sheet, and unfortunately, uh, because it's late cycle, companies have a lot of pricing power. And there's very few investor protections that we typically like to see in a more senior part of the capital the structure. covenants aren't uh, particularly they're, vigorous. They're, they're not vigorous and in some cases non-existent. And so I think when Lee picks up on that, it is something to really watch out for. I mean, it's interesting from an equity point of view, probably equity investors are reassured that the banks are not chasing growth at the expense of margin. Because clearly um, what we're seeing since the global financial crisis is the banks significantly repairing their balance sheets, substantially improving their capital ratios, and really putting themselves in a position where for the first time since the crisis, they can start really thinking about returning excess capital to shareholders, about boosting dividend growth. And my sense is that bank investors would much rather see that capital come back to them uh, than chasing growth that may or may not be there at attractive rates of return on that that capital. But they're finally in a position now um, to tackle the last crisis. Um, we could maybe talk in another discussion about whether they're positioned for the uh, for the next cri- crisis, whatever it might be. Well, they're certainly better positioned if another crisis comes because their balance sheets are in much better state than they were last time round. You know, with funding costs going up, Marty, are there expectations that default rates would uh, would go up this year? Well, that, that's it's picking up on quite a few themes here. So one of the dynamics in the market uh, is we have a fairly flat yield curve. And so what companies have been able to do is if they if they would have taken advantage of, of lower interest rates at the shorter term part of the capital structure, they would have had more short-term financing. A flat yield curve has meant that they can push out these maturities. So I think another one of the reasons that the analysts don't, um, don't see an imminent recession is that the funding wall is quite a few years out. And so if, if you look at, uh, at the statistics, it's not until 21, 2021, 2022, where we really look at refinancing needs for companies. So no pressure really until then. No big pressure. That's right. Well, that sounds all rather encouraging. What, um, what other positive things have you found in this survey, Michael? I think that um, from an equity investor's point of view, um, I think it's important to note that we are um, perhaps less positive on dividend growth outlook, but still positive. So um, dividend growth is, in fact, the strongest indicator of sentiment within the survey. And when I dig down into our analysts' models and forecasts, yes, we've got dividend growth slowing in 2019, but we're still looking for 5% globally. That's a real rate of growth versus inflation. Um, And it is positive, albeit less than the 8% we were seeing in 2018. And I think a similar picture emerges on things like capital spending. Yes, CapEx is weaker, um, but certainly that has to be seen in the context 
of really a very strong survey for capital spending in 2018. Uh, and in fact, first predicted in the 2017 survey. Uh, well, well, let's talk about CapEx then, because it is interesting. Uh, we'll get an analyst view. Sumant Wahi is an analyst who covers tech stocks, and he points out about how the effects of fiscal stimulus in the States are fading, meaning slower business in his sector. Sentiment in IT spending has changed a fair bit from last year, but I think that is uh, uh, something which you should observe on relative terms rather than on absolute. The reality around this is that last year, United States, which is one of the largest spenders in IT spending, uh, had a significant tax change, which allowed a lot of companies to move some of their tax savings into uh, into IT projects, and that led to a significant acceleration in IT spend. It went up to eight nine percent, if you will, and. Uh, since that time, for that as a comparison point, uh, 2019 was always expected to s- slow down. So Simant's giving us an example there of some of the front-loading that's been happening as a result of President Trump's uh, policies last year. And does that explain the fall in CapEx ex- expectations we see in this year's survey, Marty? It, it certainly plays into it. And, and clearly, for, if, if you look at the U.S., there were two major themes going on last year. You had some fiscal stimulus hitting the market, and you had the change in tax code. And so both of those were significant drivers of earnings growth in 2018. Uh, I think one of the things that came out of the survey is an expectation that the Trump policies won't be as uh, positive across the companies that that analysts cover this year. Well, that shouldn't be that much of a surprise, given that, you know, 2018 was such a big year. And the political situation is a little bit less certain this year, given that uh, the Democrats have taken over the House. So, you know, I'm not at all surprised to see that analysts are a little bit more cautious on the ability for the U.S. to manage some of some of the the fiscal policies this year. And in fact, internationally, uh, Michael, a lot of the analysts have turned quite negative. Um, They're they're still just positive uh, on Trump within the U.S., um, but externally, it's 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 really gone sour. Yeah, so I think there's been a real change in the narrative around Trump. I think when we look at the the prior year surveys, there's a lot of discussion about deregulation, particularly in the financial sector. Uh, And there was talk about sort of pump priming through fiscal stimulus. So clearly some of the shine has come off that. And at the same time, the whole narrative around trade uh, has, Ah, I think, been a very very significant negative, um, particularly as I think it was particularly prevalent uh, in the news at the time of of, of the survey. Um, So that's clearly one of the factors we need to see how that plays out. Going, in, going through 2019. Well, let's hear directly from Asia now. Casey McLean is an analyst based in Hong Kong. He covers uh, the Asia regional tech, hardware and semiconductors uh, companies. And he's telling us a little bit more about that fallen sentiment in China. The biggest change I've observed in China over the last year is a big increase in uncertainty, both from consumers and corporates. I think the major driver of this has been the trade wars. Within the corporate sector, I think there has been a big... Uh, push to delay automation of factories and capacity expansions. In the back of their mind, they have the risk that they may need to relocate their capacity to Southeast Asia to avoid uh, tariffs. So Casey, they're telling us that companies have halted some investment in case they need to move. In fact, he also described Taiwanese companies considering moving home from the mainland and American companies which have already moved their operations to Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Malaysia and Thailand. Well, that's definitely hurt the outlook for China, which is where we've seen the biggest fall in sentiment, isn't it? It certainly hit the outlook for China. Um, Sentiment was particularly weak in China. Um, so trade was, was, was part of the narrative. But I also think just 
the economic performance, particularly in the fourth quarter, was really some of the weakest we've seen in China for a long time. So um, auto sales were down over the course of the year in in China, um, but actually the fourth quarter was down double digit. A very similar picture uh, emerging on smartphone sales. So we're really seeing the first sort of negative numbers being printed in in China, certainly in the duration of this survey. And I think one of the intriguing things was that, yes, sentiment in China was negative, but actually... The closer you get to China in terms of analysts on the ground, the more negative it was. And that's actually a reversal of the, of, of the prior year survey, where actually our analysts outside China were much more concerned. And what about the picture in China? Because mm. um, there's been some stimulus from monetary policy mm. um, uh, attempts to, to, to boost uh, the economy. Um, there is fiscal stimulus as well. But, mm. but what's, what's the picture there? Uh, look, growth is slowing. Uh, the government has recognized that there's too much debt in the system. Uh, it's something we, we've been paying attention to for quite some time. And we're starting to see some defaults in China. And um, you may be surprised to hear this from a fixed income person. But this is actually a, it's a positive uh, thing that we're starting to see a little bit of what I would call managed defaults. Um, it's not pervasive. Def- is it a return to reality? I think you could call it that. It's probably a good way to describe it, Richard, which is, uh, you, you know, it's it's for companies that perhaps received funding that didn't have the most robust business plan. Some of those companies are now being allowed to fail, if you will. And uh, yeah. So the idea is that we're left with a, a healthier economy at, at the end. And, of it. And, and if it's managed well by by the government, who clearly is 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 quite involved in things, then then I think it would leave us in a much healthier state. And, and that is our general view. Let's just try and come up with a, a few summaries from, from this year's uh, analyst survey. Um, what's the main message that you're left with, uh, Michael, at the end of all this? I'm very much left with the message of slowdown rather than recession and a slowdown that we have to see in the context of a very high starting point in 2018. Marty? Yeah, I, I think that that's clear. It doesn't matter if you're equity or fixed income. That That's the view. We asked the analysts a number of questions on ESG and sustainability. And it's clearly last year, the theme was a dramatic increase in the focus on companies that we cover on ESG. Uh, we didn't see that dramatic increase this year. But we, we, we see a continual increase in things. And, and, you know, picking up on the China theme, that's showing some continued increase in the number of companies in China that are actually thinking about ESG. If there's something that's a little bit surprising that came out of the survey, it's it's that um, you know in China even the number of companies that are focused on ESG continues to increase, which isn't something you'd expect in in, in people's preconceptions, perhaps. Of, that's right. Uh, of attitudes towards uh, yeah, ESG that's r- and sustainable. That's uh, right. Uh, business. And uh, I'd like to think that we have a little bit of something to do with that because you know our analysts are asking lots of questions uh, to management teams, and we hope that that's planting a seed globally uh, for for them to start thinking about sustainable issues. And and Michael, um, f- give you an opportunity to think of anything surprising that uh, that popped out of the surveys. You first went through the data uh, when we when we we got it back from the analysts. I think two surprising things that I would highlight. Um, one is perhaps, although we are saying it's a slowdown and 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 there is a certain amount of gloom and doom, that perhaps could it be worse? Would be my question. Um, and then the second thing is. Th- you know, perhaps people are just 
becoming, you know, for want of a better phrase, bored with the whole political environment, because I definitely feel that some of the sort of geopolitical risks that clearly um, we can all list um, are being underplayed. Were, 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 were certainly not as aggressively um, recorded as I, as I might have expected. So not as bad as it could have been. That's a, a particularly... That's, that's a wonderful uh, epitaph for story. anybody. <laughs> yes, yes, excellent. Well, uh, Michael says, Marty Dropkin, thank you both very much indeed for joining me. And if you're listening and would like to read the full analyst survey, we have the data, charts and detailed analysis on our websites. So thanks very much for listening to For Investment Professionals Only, the analyst survey edition. I'm Richard Edgar. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.